Romans 12, 1 and 2 first. I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. With these words, Paul begins the second part of the book of Romans. The first eleven chapters present us with the doctrine of salvation. And now, starting with chapter 12, verse 1, he's going to apply those principles to our lives and show us how to live in their light. And he says, Therefore, since you've been a recipient of the mercy of God, since everything in the first eleven chapters are true, and since you've experienced them in your own life, I beseech you, I urge you, I press you to dedicate the entirety of your life, everything you are and everything you have, to the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. In all your relationships, in every aspect of your life, in every facet of human existence, you dedicate it to the Lord Jesus Christ as a living sacrifice out of gratitude to him for his mercies bestowed upon you. And then in the rest of chapter 12, he talks about some of those relationships in which we're to surrender our life to Christ. He talks about our relationship with other Christians in the first part of that chapter. Then he goes on to talk about our relationship with uh, people in general, whether they're Christians or not. And then he concludes that chapter by talking about how to deal with your enemies. Those who are hostile to you seek to injure you in some way or another. And in all these relationships, you are to surrender yourself to Christ and you are to live in a way that pleases him. Then we come to chapter 13 and he says, now, here's how you are to be a faithful Christian in the area of politics. You see, when you talk about politics today from the pulpit, uh, people say you're not spiritual. But your understanding of and involvement in politics for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely essential to your dedicating to yourself as a living sacrifice to him. Because you're to be a living sacrifice to him in every facet of life, in the church, in the world at large, with your enemies, and also with reference to political institutions. So now let's look at the first uh, seven or eight verses of chapter 13. Let every person be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good, but if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. Wherefore, it is necessary to be be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. For because of this you also pay taxes, for rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing." Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another, for the one who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. So Christians are not to say, well, politics are not for me. That's for those that have a particular interest or bent in that uh, uh, area. No, everything should be important to us that is important to God. And everything is important to God. And in all of our relationships, we may not hold back one area of our lives and say, I'm going to live as a living sacrifice for Jesus Christ in all these areas except politics, and there I'm going to vote the way my granddaddy voted. I don't care about the Bible or anything else. 
But you see, our faithfulness to Christ also must permeate the political arena as well. And in these first eight verses of chapter 13, you have some principles, very simple principles, that help you evaluate every political issue and every political candidate comes before you. Uh, so that if you remember these things, or you don't have to be some genius in politics. You just have to get a handle on these three or four little principles that are found in this text. And then when anybody ever asks you what's your opinion on a particular subject, a particular person, you just try to express it and evaluate it in the light of these principles. For it, uh, and these principles separate Christians from humanists, regardless of what they call themselves. For instance, it first of all tells us the origin of civil government. That civil government did not originate with a social compact made between various people in a particular culture, but civil government was instituted by God. It's God's creation. It's God's invention. God is the source and the origin of civil government. And because God is the source of civil government, the civil government is accountable to its source. Now, what's the alternative to believing that in America? It is to believing that the people are sovereign. Is the people are the source of government? Well, if the people are the source of the government, then the government is accountable to the people. Whatever the people want, the people get. But you see, that flies in the face of the basic principles of Christianity. The people are not sovereign. God is sovereign. And the civil government is not accountable to the people. It's accountable to the living God. And when the Bible says here that because government originates with God, that does not mean that you can't criticize the government. That doesn't mean that the government's beyond criticism because it originates with God. And it is supreme. No, the point that's being made here is the government originates with God who is supreme. God cannot be criticized. God is beyond criticism. But a civil government can be criticized and evaluated in the light of its origin, who is God himself. Not the people and not a particular man or a particular human contract. Now, the second thing that this uh, passage tells us, the first is the origin of civil government. The second is the function of civil government. You'll notice in this passage of Scripture, it doesn't say anything about health, education, and welfare. Because nowhere in the Scriptures are those functions given to the federal government. The civil government has only one function, whether it's a federal or state or city, whatever. The purpose of civil government is to terrorize evildoers. That's its only function. And if it doesn't do that and tries to do a lot of various other things, it's not going to terrorize evildoers. It's going to terrorize law-abiding citizens. That it is to bring the vengeance of God to bear upon the lawless to protect the law-abiding citizen from the lawbreaker, to protect the church, most particularly of the, Lord, uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ, to make sure the church has the freedom to propagate the gospel without any kind of hindrances. It has no other functions in Scripture. Its function is to terrorize evildoers for the protection of godly people. Now, in order to do that, it has three powers given to it by the Lord, or three limitations, however you want to talk about it, because these powers are limitations as well as powers. First of all, in order to terrorize evildoers, it has been given, according to this passage, the power of the sword. Now, what do you do with swords? You don't butter bread with swords. The purpose of swords is to hurt somebody who will not uh, cease from injuring another person's property, life, or welfare, or reputation, or liberties, or security. And the civil government has been given the power of the sword, that is, the use of legal deadly force if necessary, to enforce the law, to terrorize evildoers, to protect the law-abiding citizen from the lawbreaker. Anybody who has a sword in his hand is going to terrorize somebody. 
The purpose of the civil government is to terrorize. That's why it has its sword. It has an army for just wars to defend a homeland that's under attack from another invading army. It has the power of the courts and the police and of, of the civil sanctions to punish criminals within a culture. It does not have the authority to, to dictate what you're to believe. <coughs> it, do, it does not have the authority of thought police. If you'll notice in this particular passage of Scripture, its concern is to punish evil behavior, not evil thinking. That the purpose of the civil government is not to make you think a certain way and then punish you if you don't think that way. What was it that uh, D. James Kennedy said Friday night about a recent decision of the Supreme Court? It outlawed a particular prayer, something to the effect, uh, we thank you for this day and for this food and we thank you for this and that. And, and it outlawed, an, uh, uh, that is, a court in America, I don't know whether it's the Supreme Court, but a court in America outlawed that prayer even though it didn't even use the word God. And the reason the Supreme Court said it outlawed, or, or the court said it outlawed that law is because uh, even though the word law, uh, God, is not used in that prayer, using that prayer may make the student in the public school think about God. And that's unconstitutional. So you see, we're not Orwellian. We don't believe in thought police. We don't believe the purpose of the civil government is to regulate your thinking, but to punish evil actions. And that's why God has given it the power of the sword. That's the first power. The second power is the power to tax. Here it says clearly that the civil government has been given the power to tax because you have to have money to pay judges, you have to have money to pay policemen, you have to have money to pay uh, an army, that uh, there is money required in running a government. You've got to have it. And so God says that the civil government has the authority to levy taxes. In fact, when you see it in the light of the whole Bible, there's only one tax that the civil government has the authority to levy, and that is a head tax, where everybody pays the same amount. Not where everybody pays the same rate. The Republican flat rate tax is an ungodly tax, and it's a non-biblical tax. Uh, you have now a the, 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 uh, movement afoot to replace the uh, income tax with the sales tax. Sales taxes are ungodly taxes. All forms of taxes are ungodly and forbidden except one. And the reason for that is because taxation presupposes proprietorship and sovereignty and control. That if you tax something, it presupposes your control over it and your ownership of it. For instance, the United States is not going to ta uh, tax the Parliament of England because it does not have any control or proprietorship in the Parliament of England. But it will tax your property because it assumes control and ownership of your property. It will tax your income because it assumes sovereignty over your income. It will tax your inheritance because it presupposes sovereignty and control over your inheritance. And you see, all of these taxes presuppose that the person that's levying the taxes assumes that he's God. Because only God has sovereign control over your income and over your property and over your inheritance in every area of life. The only tax that the civil government has the levy, a power to levy is a head tax where everybody pays the same amount and where that amount is so low that nobody complains. Somebody asked me one time, they said, Joe, how in the world can the civil government maintain itself with such a, such a low tax? I said, you've got my point. It can't. Uh, so, the point is, the civil government has been given the power to tax. Not to use the tax for anything it wants to use it for, but to use the tax to make it effective terrorist of evildoers. Then there is a third power that God has given the civil government, and that is the power of the minister of uh, God. You'll notice in our text that it is called the minister of God in verse 4, <coughs> two times. 
And then down in verse 6, the civil government is called the servants of God. Now, why is the civil government called the same thing that I'm called in Scripture? I'm a minister of God in the church. Why is the civil government called a minister of God in the civil sphere? Well, why am I called a minister of God in the church? Because I have no legislative authority. I have no authority to do anything else in the church but to, but to administer the gospel that's found written in the Bible. I can't add to it. I can't take away from I can't come next Sunday and say, hey, this isn't in the Bible, but, but I've got a new thought here. And I think you ought to follow this particular thing. And I created doctrine ex nihilo out of absolutely nothing. I don't have the authority. I can only administer what's written. Well, that's why the civil government has been called a minister of God. It has no authority to institute laws ex nihilo out of the wild blue yonder. But the only authority that God has given the civil government is to enforce and obey biblical law, to be a minister of the law of God and of no other law. The civil government is to be involved in distinguishing between good and evil because it's got to punish evil behavior and protect good behavior. What if the civil government had no standard by which to distinguish the two? You reckon it ever used the sword against good behavior? It sure does. And the only standard by which we can distinguish good behavior and bad behavior is the Word of God. And the civil government is to be a minister of the Word of God. It is to enforce and obey biblical law and no other laws. Of course, you know now when you say that out in public, uh, people call you a legalist. Well, you're just one of those Puritans that wants to take the laws of the Bible and apply them to the civil fear. Well, well, you're right. We are. We are guilty of all those things. But we are not legalists. I mean, I'm only talking two or three hundred. Every year the Congress of the United States passes tens of thousands. Not only the tens of thousands the Congress passed, but the t- hundreds of thousands of regulations by the uh, executive department. Who's the legalist? The Christian that has two or three hundred? Or the humanist has tens upon tens of thousands. And so just use these principles to evaluate every, every bill, every political issue, every political candidate. And when you do that, you're going to make the Democrats mad at you. You're going to make the Republicans mad at you. You're going to make the Libertarians mad at you. You're going to make every political party in the United States mad at you. Because there's not one that's consistently thoroughly Christian. But you use those principles. Now, what does all this have to do with church history, which is our theme over several months? Because we're talking about a man who sought with all his heart to, in, to institute the biblical principles of politics of Romans 13 to English culture. That's what he lived for. That was the goal of his life. He didn't do it perfectly. But let's go back to the study of Oliver Cromwell, who did his best to try to make England a Christian republic. If you haven't been coming, we uh, on Sunday nights for the past three or four nights, we've been looking at Oliver Cromwell, one of the three greatest, in my opinion, Christians that have ever lived along with Augustine and John Calvin. Let me say something about the Presbyterians in the 1600s. We've been pretty rough on them, you remember? We said that the Presbyterians were not only wrong in, what they, uh, in their strategy, but they were stupid in some of the things they did, that they wanted to use the power of the sword to enforce a Presbyterian system upon England. They got rid of the Anglican Church. Now they wanted to use the power of the sword to make everybody Presbyterians and to make all the, all the churches of the land Presbyterian churches so that you had no freedom to be anything other than a Presbyterian. And we saw that was the great uh, conflict that Oliver Cromwell, who was not a Presbyterian in church government but was in doctrine, 
That was the great conflict that uh, Oliver Cromwell had with the Presbyterians because he saw that as bigotry. He saw that as an unbiblical intolerance that would lead eventually to slavery. And so he was, uh, he signed the Solemn League and Covenant saying that he would seek to reform England by the best examples of reformed churches in Scotland and Europe, all of which were Presbyterian, but he did not believe that Presbyterian was to be imposed upon the churches by the force of the sword. And then, of course, there was another problem, we say, with the Presbyterians, is they all wanted the king back, and they regretted it after Cromwell's death. Well, now, after having said all those negative things, I do want to say it was a grievous loss for England that after Parliament endorsed the Westminster Confession of Faith, which spells out the basic uh, doctrines of the Protestant Reformation, it was a grievous loss for England that Parliament did, uh, that England did not adopt a Presbyterian form of government for her churches. It is something that led to all the confusion, the schism, the divisiveness, the argument, the, the chaos of the sects and the cults and wars and bloodshed and confusion that eventually enabled the humanists, the socialists to grab hold of England because England never did endorse uh, and take seriously that a Presbyterian form of government and form of church worship and form of discipline was essential to freedom and essential to the very things that Cromwell tried to establish. Now, why do I say that? What was it the Presbyterians wanted when, when they say we want a Presbyterian church was all they were concerned about is we want Presbyterian preachers paid by the state. That's why we don't want any more Episcopalians paid by the state. We want the Presbyterians to pay, be paid by the state. No. What was the goal that these, these were godly men? What did the godly Presbyterians of the 1600s want when they sought, though unbiblically in their strategy, to establish a Presbyterian system for England? I want to read to you from a great book called The History of the Westminster Assembly of Divines by William Hetherington that I recommend to you, except he didn't like Cromwell. And uh, he had a lot of Scotch blood in him. And, but I want to read to you this, this paragraph about uh, the loss of England and the West when it did not endorse a Presbyterian form of government. The people of England do not yet know and cannot easily conceive how grievous was the loss which they sustained by the unfortunate failure of the attempt to render the Presbyterian Church the ecclesiastical establishment of the kingdom. To them it would have been the source of almost unmingled and incalculable good, giving to them the advantage of an evangelical, pious, laborious, and regularly resident ministry in every parish. That's the first thing. The Presbyterians were known to be godly and to be preachers of the gospel. And you remember that, uh, that Oliver Cromwell loved to hear Presbyterian preachers and chose Richard Baxter as one of his chaplains, who was one of the great uh, Presbyterian preachers of, the, of that day, even though Richard Baxter was for the king and was against Cromwell. That these were men, their goal was to have a godly preacher who preached the Bible in every church in England. Not a bad goal. It never happened. They also, wanted a uh, they also wanted, together with cheap and universally accessible education. Do you know that during the time of the Commonwealth, during the days of Cromwell, education prospered in Great Britain the likes of which it, it, it hadn't in many, many years? You know why? Because through Cromwell and others, it was the Presbyterians that were appointed to the posts of education in places like Oxford and Cambridge and many of the other universities and schools, and education at a high level prospered under the Presbyterians in England under Cromwell more than at any other time. 
the constant inspection of elders to watch over the moral conduct. What the Presbyterians wanted was every church to have elders that didn't act as a board of directors and meet once every two or three months to make decisions and then go home. But they wanted elders elected from the church to be the real shepherds and overseers of a particular church and deacons to attend to the wants of the poor in the spirit of Christian kindness and benevolence because the deacons didn't, weren't allowed to do their job. Who took over the whole area of health, education, and welfare in England, like America, the government, and it became socialistic? And had the Presbyterians been able to institute, by godly means, this Presbyterian way of understanding the life of the church, socialism would never have happened in Great Britain or in England or in America. All regulated by the superintendents of presbyteries and synods to prevent the, ha the hazard of injury from local neglect or prejudice. And that all these preachers and all these elders wouldn't be out here by themselves running their own show as little popes in autonomous independent churches, but all of them would be accountable to organizations of elders and of preachers, presbyteries, who would examine these men to make sure they were sound, to make sure they were faithful, people, presbyteries and courts to whom churches could appeal if some preacher was not preaching the truth or not being godly in his life. The loss for Great Britain in not instituting a Presbyterian way of life has been incalculable and, in my opinion, is the reason Great Britain returned to the monarchy of the Stuarts and eventually to socialism. And the same is for us as well. You cannot have socialism and tyranny in a Presbyterian culture. You can have it, as we've seen before, in a Roman Catholic culture, in an Episcopal culture, and in a Baptist culture, but you cannot have it in a Presbyterian culture. It has never been. There has never been growing side by side tyranny and a strong Presbyterian witness. All right, I just didn't want you to think that I I didn't like these Presbyterians at all back in Cromwell's day. I liked them a lot, but I like Cromwell more. All right, now let's go back to the Rump Parliament. You remember the Rump Parliament? The Rump Parliament was the tail end of the Long Parliament. The Long Parliament had sat for 13 years, in my opinion, the greatest parliament in the history of England. Not, not uh, perfect, but great. And at the end of that time, there was the need to try the king of England, King Charles I, for murder and treason. And it had to be done by Parliament. But Parliament was not in the mood to try the king. It never happened before because there were too many Presbyterians in Parliament who were in favor of the king, even though he was a tyrant. So you remember Colonel Pride, who was in the New Model Army, the godliest segment of, of English culture, over which Oliver Cromwell was the commander. And you remember how Colonel Pride stood at the door of Parliament one day when they realized we've got to try and, if he's guilty, execute the king or else we're going to have more totalitarianism and more death of our brothers. So Colonel Pride stood at the door of Parliament, just asked everybody a simple question when they walked through the door, are you for the king or not? If they said you're for the king, you wouldn't let him in. So they purged the Parliament of all the Presbyterians who were for the king, and that left the rump. The rump parliament made up of all those who were supporters of Oliver Cromwell and who believed that the king ought to come to trial. Well, parliament, uh, uh, Cromwell had great hope for the rump parliament. These people, hopefully, are godly men. They'll recognize the need for the reestablishment of England according to the word of God. But as time went on, as we saw, the rump parliament was a disappointment to Cromwell and to England. That it dissatisfied everybody because of its decisions that it made. It opposed Cromwell in his efforts to establish a Christian republic. 
The army said we need to have a new parliament, we need to have new elections. Parliament was determined to do away with general elections, and so they said, oh, we're going to have new elections, but that's for new people. If you're already in Parliament, you don't have to ever worry about elections again. You don't ever have to go through the problem of campaigning and get reelected. Once you're in Parliament, you're in Parliament for life, but we will have elections, and that's simply to add to our numbers, and then once they're in, they never have to go. Well, this was more than Oliver Cromwell and the Republicans, in the good sense, could bear. And you remember one man to whom Cromwell whispered as uh, he realized that they couldn't take any more from the rump parliament, wrote down in the book what Cromwell said to him. Cromwell whispered in his ear concerning the rump parliament, these men will never leave till the army pulls them out by the ears. So I want to read to you now how Cromwell pulled out the rump parliament by the ears and dissolved it. This is, I'm quoting again from the great book on, called The Lord Protector by Merrill Daubigny. And he says this about the disillusion, the dissolving of the rump parliament by Oliver Cromwell. On the 20th of April, 1653, Colonel Ingoldsby informed Cromwell that the Parliament was passing a bill to prolong its duration and eventually to do away with general elections. Indignant and greatly excited, Cromwell exclaimed, It's not honest, it's contrary to human honesty. He then hastened down to the House of Commons, followed by a company of musketeers, whom he left in the lobby. He entered the hall and composedly seated himself in his usual place, listening attentively to the debate. His dress was a plain suit of black cloth, with gray worsted stockings, the ordinary costume of the Puritans. For about a quarter of an hour, he sat still. But when the speaker was going to put the question, he whispered to Lieutenant General Harrison, This is the time. I must do it now. Alluding to this crisis, he said at a subsequent period, When I went to the house, I did not think to have done this, but perceiving the Spirit of God strong upon me, I would no longer consult flesh and blood. After pausing for a minute, Cromwell rose, and taking off his hat, addressed the members at first in laudatory terms, praising them, gradually becoming warmer and more excited and vehement. He charged them with injustice and self-interest, and then declared that he had come down to put an end to a power of which they had made such bad use. By this time, he was very excited, walking up and down the House of Commons, occasionally stamping the floor with his feet. You are no parliament, he said. I'll put an end to your sitting. Some of you are drunkards. And then he walked along and pointed to the ones that were drunkards. <laughs> said, others of you live corrupt and scandalous lives. And then he pointed out those that live scandalous lives. I say to you, you are no parliament. Get ye gone. Give way to honester men. Speaker Lintall declared that he would not retire until forced. Harrison then took him by the hand and led him from the chair. What shall we do with this? What shall we do with this fool's bauble? He's talking about that great gold scepter that is the symbol of parliamentary power. What shall we do with this fool's bauble? Said Cromwell, fixing his eyes on the mace. Here, take it away. And he gave it to a musketeer. After all the members of the rump parliament to the number of 80 had vanished, the protector locked the door, put the key in his pocket, and walked away. The next day, somebody in jest, as well as being serious, nailed a sign to the door of parliament which read, 
this house is for rent unfurnished. <laughs> now, why did, why did Cromwell do it? I mean, that's serious business, dissolving a parliament. Charles I lost his head for that. So why is it that he felt it was the Holy Spirit was on him so much that he could do nothing else? Here's his reasons. First of all, he was convinced that the rump parliament had failed in reforming English culture by the word of God. He was convinced that it had extended its authority beyond what was given to it and had full intentions of extending it to a new totalitarianism that would end voting and general elections in England. But most importantly, Oliver Cromwell, being committed to the Christianization of every aspect of English life, was convinced that the rump parliament had betrayed the Christian revolution of England and that it had not done what it was supposed to do and established a new English culture upon the foundation of justice and righteousness, that the English people were growing weary of a small group of politicians calling the shots and lining their own pockets in the meanwhile. He had no intentions of dissolving a parliamentary form of government. He simply wanted a short interregnum, a short period, in which he could select a body of men of integrity who would draw up a new constitution which could be in place after the emotions and the heat and the jealousies of the present has, had subsided and a fresh and new parliament could be elected. You see, as over against England prior to that, Oliver Cromwell wanted a written constitution, not just a common law, but a written constitution based upon the word of God. Well, after he dissolved the rump parliament, he established, he created one of the most unusual legislative bodies in the history of the West or in the history of the world. If you see it in a book, it's called the Assembly of the Saints. Or in most books, it's called the Bare Bones Parliament. After he dissolved Parliament, Cromwell resisted the temptation to assume full authority and rule the country by himself. Rather, with John Owen's advice, he decided to invite the independent churches. Now, here again, you've got to remember what an independent church was. Uh, you had the Roman Catholic Church, which was outlawed in England now. You had the Anglican Church, which was unlawful in England. And now you had... The Presbyterians, which were the largest body, which believed that congregations were not independent but were connected by common faith and the common government, and who believed the basic principles of the Reformed faith. Uh, then you had the independents, who agreed with the Presbyterians on everything except church government. They baptized babies. They baptized by sprinkling. They believed all of the uh, doctrines of the Reformed faith. They loved the Westminster Confession of Faith. They helped write the Westminster Confession of Faith. And the independents were growing in number, of course, because Oliver Cromwell was an independent. He believed in all the other Presbyterian doctrines except that local congregations are separate, autonomous, independent from each other with no connection between them. And you cannot build a culture with that mentality. You know, the United States Constitution was not based upon independent or Baptist theology, but on Presbyterian theology and church government. What are the two basic elements of a Presbyterian church? One, it's representative. A Presbyterian church is not a democracy. 
That is, the majority plus one do not make the decisions in the church. Nor is it a monarchy where one man calls all the shots. But rather, a Presbyterian church is a representative church where the people elect elders to represent the Word of God. Now, that was right in the heart of the Constitution of the United States. But what's the second great uh, element of Presbyterianism as over independency? Confederation, a confederacy of churches. It's not accidental that the very first uh, Constitution we had were called the Articles of Confederation. Because what did they see in the Presbyterian Church? They saw, just like you had 13 independent states bind themselves together with common cords and a common federal government. Because they saw in the Presbyterian Church congregations with separate authority in those congregations bound together by a common organization and a common unity and a common confession of faith. So confederacy and representation are the two marks of the United States constitutional government. They got that from the Presbyterians. You can have neither if you have an independency where every congregation is totally detached from the other. All you can wind up with is a form of pluralism, and of course, there is no such thing as pluralism. Religious and ethical pluralism, that is. And then you had Baptists, and there were very few Baptists. Very few Baptists. The first Baptist church in, uh, in history that, Im that immersed people on profession of faith was founded by Englishmen uh, in Europe who had fled Bloody Mary in the late 1500s. And the Baptist church was very, very small. It was there, but very small in the days of Oliver Cromwell. And then there were the Quakers and some other uh, peripheral fringes. Uh, so this, what Cromwell wanted was to get the independent churches, the churches that uh, weren't Presbyterian because, or Anglican because they were for the king, the independent churches in each county to nominate a list of names to him and the council of the army from which he would choose an assembly of saints, a parliament. Though they didn't call them that. They called them the assembly of notables or the assembly of saints. And Cromwell would get these nominees from the godly independent Calvinistic churches and then from these nominees, he appointed the Assembly of Saints. Now get this, lest you think Cromwell was a dictator. He not only tried his best to have a constitution, he not only tried his best to have a representative government, but he tried his best to have representative godly parliaments. And so, when the Assembly of the Saints was firmly established as the governing body of England, Oliver Cromwell surrendered all of his power to the Assembly of the Saints. Here it is. I'm laying down all power. It's in your hands. So you see the commitment of this man. He tried his best. He hoped that in due time, the Assembly of Saints would be a wider representative body and would have governing power. He wanted men in this assembly who were faithful and honest Christians, who in his words were known for their fear of God, their intelligence, and their renunciation of worldly passions. And by and large, there were such men. And there's nobody that can properly govern a government, a nation, but that kind of men. The only kind of people you ever want in any office, whether it's mayor or governor or legislature or Congress or president, the only men you want in office are those who are known for their fear of God, their intelligence, 
and their renunciation of worldly passions. Nobody else will do you any good. I can count on less than one hand those in the Congress of the United States who are known for their fear of God, their intelligence, and their renunciation of worldly passions. In the Assembly of the Saints, there were 139 representatives for England, six for Wales, six for Ireland, and five for Scotland. It was the first time that Parliament was represented by all of the nations that are now known as Great Britain. Cromwell opened the Assembly July 4th, 1653, with these words. He was ecstatic that day. I can just feel with him, can't you? Here is an assembly of godly men that are going to govern England. And so he gave this speech, the opening day of the Bare Bones Parliament. He said, I beseech you, now he's addressing Parliament. Now bear in mind, here you have Oliver Cromwell, the Commander-in-Chief of the Model Army, Executive of State, addressing the Parliament. All of them Puritans, everybody Puritans and the whole thing. I beseech you, but I think I need not, have a care for the whole flock. Love the sheep, love the lambs, love all, cherish and countenance all, in all things that are good. And if the poorest Christian, the most mistaken Christian, shall desire to live peaceably and quietly under you, I say, if any shall desire but to lead a life of godliness and honesty, let him be protected by you. Now, that's great politics. That's great Christian politics. He doesn't say if a Muslim or a Hindu or a humanist or an atheist or a Buddhist lives a life, he deserves your protection. He says, if the poorest Christian, the most mistaken Christian, shall desire to live peaceably and quietly under you, I say, if any shall desire but to lead a life of godliness and honesty, let him be protected by the law. I think I need not advise, much less press you, to endeavor the promoting of the gospel, to encourage the ministry, such a ministry and such ministers as be faithful in the land, upon whom the true character is, men that have received the Spirit. I speak not, I thank God it's, it's far from my heart, for a ministry deriving itself from the papacy and pretending to that which is so much insisted on. The Spirit is given for that use, to make proper speakers forth of God's eternal truth. I confess, I never looked to see such a day as this. It may be, nor you neither, when Jesus Christ should be so owned as he is this day of you. God manifests this to be the day of the power of Christ, with a Christian king, so to speak, a Christian head of state, a Christian parliament having through so much blood and so much trial as hath been upon these nations, made this to be one of the great issues thereof, to have his people called to the supreme authority. He makes this to be the greatest mercy next to his own son. Perhaps you're not known by face to one another coming from all parts of the nation as you do, but we shall tell you that indeed we have not allowed ourselves the choice of one person in whom we had not this good hope that there was in him faith in Jesus Christ and love to all God's people. If these words of Cromwell are truthful, then this political assembly was one without example before or since. 
Well, he was ecstatic and he was excited. But as we're going to see, the assembly of saints proved to be a drastic failure. And there is a lesson to be learned here from the start, and that is that top-down revivals are short-lived and disillusioning. That's the reason Lutheranism stalled out in Germany, but Calvinism continued to spread and catch fire in, French, in France and in Holland, the Netherlands, Belgium, Great Britain, Scotland, and the United States. Because Luther would go into these countries and try to win the princes for Christ and then get the princes to impose Christianity upon the populace. The Calvinists would go into community and preach the gospel to grassroots, and then the grassroots would change their culture. Oliver Cromwell had a tremendous grassroots behind him, but still there was a lot of conflict, a lot of turmoil, a lot of immaturity, a lot of divisiveness. And so the one mistake of the great, one of the great mistakes of this great man, and of course great men make great mistakes, is a top-down revival that hoping by having a Christian government you can force a people to be a Christian people and he, that was shown to be false well at first these men in the assembly of the saints showed themselves to be what Cromwell had expected them to be these were godly men and they went right to work they reestablished the economy so that it began to prosper they suppressed arbitrary taxes. They gave the nation a just code of laws. They allowed each church to choose its own minister rather than having one forced upon it by a national church. They suppressed tithes. Now, what that means is, is that you tithe to the state, and then the state administered uh, the tithe money to the various preachers in the established churches. And, of course, they were against that altogether, and that we would be too. By the way, that's the way they do in Germany where all preachers in Germany are employees of the state. Uh, they diminished the army. They lowered the number of soldiers. They also purified the clergy. That's a great story, and nothing caused as much opposition as the Assembly of Saints purifying the clergy. Cromwell was really thrilled at first. He said, this is a party congress. This is a constituent assembly. It is the high point of this Christian revolution that we're experiencing. He no sooner said that then later, he said, concerning the Assembly of Saints, after being so ecstatic when it was founded, later he said, quote, This little parliament is the story of my weakness and my folly. Now, why was Cromwell so disillusioned with this Assembly of Saints? One reason. Everybody wanted reformed. Everybody wanted every area of, of, of English culture reformed and rebuilt by the Word of God. The men in the Assembly of Saints plunged recklessly into this work of reform with reckless abandon, no wisdom. One man said that the Assembly of the Saints drove too fast and too furious, furiously for Cromwell. The things that they did many of times were right or bordering on right, but they did it with such lack of wisdom and in such a hurry, so anxious to get things done, that they became an embarrassment to themselves. Let me give you a couple uh, examples. There was one court called the Court of the Chancery. After uh, th That was a long-standing court, a major court in the English ju uh, jurisprudence system. After one day of debate, 
the assembly of saints abolished it. Now, here's a long-standing court. It's like, like Christians take it over Congress and one day vote to do away with the Supreme Court the next day. That may not be that bad. But, the, I mean, you could imagine the confusion. Now, this court was abusive. Its abuses were notorious. The, the court of chancery had a backlog of 23,000 cases, some being backlogged for 30 years. They did away with it, but the lack of wisdom was they didn't replace it with anything. They didn't replace it with a biblical court. Then the Assembly of Saints outlawed tithing. That doesn't mean it outlawed you tithing to God, but it outlawed and said it was unlawful you paying your tithes as taxes to the state, and then your tithes are administered by the state to the various preachers who work for the state in the parish churches. They said, it's not biblical, we're doing away with it tomorrow. Vote, majority rule, pow, that's it. Not taken into consideration that many of the people who were paid by these unbiblical tithes were older people who had no further means of support, and if he just overnight took away their income, they would die of starvation. And it was that type of thing that these Christians, like one person said, you can, you can admire their spunk, but not their wisdom continued to upset everybody. In the meanwhile, Cromwell was anxious to end the war with the Dutch. You remember, he, he was against this war all along. Holland was a Dutch Calvinistic republic, and he worked out proposals to reconcile the two Calvinistic republics of England and Holland, although he didn't get the advice and consent of the Assembly of the Saints, and they wanted to defeat the Dutch and not back off from their offered terms of peace. So their start conflicts started arising between Cromwell and the great assembly of the saints. As time went on, the assembly of the saints alienated most of the citizens of London. Now, we have a lot to learn with this. We've got to learn about being in a hurry. We've got to learn. You remember what Bonson said one time? He said, the problem with some immature, reckless theonomists uh, is that they believe that all you need for ethics is biblical law. You know, and he proved a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. He said, now the problem is that all they think they need for ethics for church or state or personal life is biblical law. He said, there's something else you need. You need wisdom. You need wisdom to know where to start, what battle to fight first for strategy. And the bare-bones parliament had biblical law. They were a bunch of theonomists, but they had very little wisdom. And they eventually offended everybody. For instance, they arrested the leveler hero, John Lilburn. Now, remember who the le 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 levelers were. The levelers were radical Democrats. They believed that everybody, almost everybody, except slaves and women, that all men should vote. Whether you're Christian, whether you're a landowner, uh, it was as close to universal suffrage in that era as you could get. And, of course, went far beyond the teaching of the Word of God. And uh, they eventually caused riots and a great deal of confusion and were always a thorn in Cromwell's side. And so the Assembly of Saints, they arrest this guy, uh, which maybe he deserved to be arrested because of, of uh, various riots. But the unwise way they offend a big segment of the populace by arresting this man at this particular point in time made them uh, tremendously disliked. Then also the assembly launched attacks on private property. It found a new toy, these Christians. 
and all what you could do for Jesus with this new toy. And this new toy was called the power to tax. And so as a result, taxation, for Jesus' sake, became arbitrary and unjust. And then in the assembly of the saints, there were the, the extreme religious views of the fifth monarchy men and others that alienated everybody. You need to know about the fifth monarchy men. These were radical, extreme millenarians. They were people who believe right now, this very moment, we must apply the Bible, we must bring in the thousand-year millennium, and we must do it by every means necessary, including the means of force. They were Christians, and many of them godly men. But they believed we're going to start the millennium, and we're going to do it, if necessary, by the vote of Parliament. And we're going to have everything explicitly Christian, and just like the San... or Jewish... And just like the Sanhedrin had 70 people, we're only going to have 70 people in one of our houses. You see, a total lack of wisdom and extremism. Cromwell was disturbed by everything that the Assembly of Saints was doing. He was disturbed at the extremism. He was dis disturbed at their persistence in having a war with the Dutch Calvinistic Republic. He was disturbed that they were claiming more power and more authority over men's lives. He was dissatisfied with their abuse of taxation. They were, t they were uh, stalling out the Christian Revolution, turning everything upside down, discrediting everything wiser heads, more mature heads like Cromwell and Lambert and others was try were trying to establish. And the problem is, Cromwell was against them and was against their extremism, but whenever anything went wrong, guess who got all the blame? Oliver Cromwell. Well, he, is, he still had a, a large, significant, uh, a significant number of supporters in the Assembly of the Saints. He was being denounced by everybody. The royalists, the people who wanted the Stuarts back on the throne, were denouncing him as a usurper. The Presbyterians were denouncing him as a usurper. The levelers, the radical Democrats, were accusing him of violating fundamental law and the liberties of England. The fifth monarchy men and the Anabaptist preachers called him the old dragon, the man of sin, and the Antichrist. And uh, things were moving right along. Well, on November the 1st, 1653, Oliver Cromwell was unanimously elected to be the head of the Council of State, which was acting as the executive branch of the government. Shortly after he was elected the head of this committee, as it were, serving as, as a head of state, shortly thereafter, John Lambert, a longtime supporter of Cromwell, did something. Right after John Owen's proposal for limited religious tolerance, that is, rather than superimposing and making all churches fit the form of the Anglican or the Presbyterian standard, let's have freedom of religion for all Christian denominations, all Protestant Christian denominations, not the radical liberty and the religious freedom that we know today where everybody's free to worship whatever God you want to use. I mean, it really doesn't matter. Well, when these old guys talked about religious freedom and religious liberty and religious tolerance, they, had, they didn't even conceive in those, of those terms. That they understood religious tolerance for all Christian denominations. 
all Orthodox Protestant Christian denominations, Presbyterian, Independent, Baptist, Congregationalist, Quaker, whatever, but not religious toleration for non-Christian groups and religions. So under, and you know, people today talk about the pilgrims, they talk about our founding fathers coming to America to establish religious freedom. And now they try to use the pilgrims to back up their view that we must be for religious freedom and give everybody the right to worship the God of their choice anytime they want to, even if it's Venus. I was in a debate one time with the pastor of the first Venusian church of Los Angeles, California. The Church of Satan and all these others, we must give all religious freedom. Well, that's not what the Puritans wanted, that's not what the Pilgrims wanted, that's not what the Founding Fathers wanted, and that certainly isn't what these great men wanted in the 16th and 17th centuries. They wanted religious freedom for all Protestant, Christian, Orthodox groups. Well, the Assembly of Saints voted that down. And so Cromwell and his supporters in the bare-bones parliament, in the Assembly of Saints, saw all this as a movement back toward bigotry and intolerance and religious persecution. And so, on December the 12th, 1653, John Lambert made a motion on the floor of the Bare Bones Parliament and mustered, believe it or not, there was a lot of people out of the room at the time, it's always wise to take note when you should have votes and when you shouldn't, uh, that there was a significant number of Cromwell's enemies out of the room with them out of the room, Lambert makes a motion and musters the majority vote, and the Parliament of England passes this law saying that it would, quote, resign their parliamentary powers to the Lord General from whom they had first received them. In other words, the Assembly of Saints committed suicide. They realized that the people in the Assembly of Saints were too radical, too unwise to do England any good. So the members, the legitimate members of that bare-bones parliament who were supporters of Cromwell at an opportune time moved to surrender all the powers of parliament to Oliver Cromwell. Passed. And he became the constitutional head of the Commonwealth of England just to make sure that uh, people wouldn't come back in the room from wherever they were and foul up things, Lambert had a uh, contingent of musketeers close at hand in case he needed more votes. After they surrendered all the power to Cromwell, the Parliament adopted a new constitution for England called the Instrument of Government. It's a very fascinating document. Next Sunday night, the Lord willing, we're going to talk about it the instrument of government. Many of the embryonic principles of the United States Constitution are to be found in, in this instrument of government. That's the name of the Constitution, the instrument of government under which Cromwell served as Lord Protector, the constitutional head of the Commonwealth of the Free State of England. Uh, embryonic principles rooted in the Word of God, which have not been practiced in England, but which have come to fruition and to maturity in the United States and the founding of the United States. So now you have Cromwell, the, the parliamentarily elected constitutional head of the Commonwealth of England, the legal constitution 
of England called the Institute, the, the uh, uh, Instrument of Government, and Cromwell was given the name Lord Protector of the Commonwealth of England, Scotland, and Ireland. The assembly also decided that there would be a new parliament of 460 members elected all every three years, and that Cromwell would rule with a freely elected parliament. All the courts and heads of states of Europe recognized and congratulated the new head of state for England, and be they Protestant or Roman Catholic, they recognized his constitutional authority. You know, throughout all his life, Cromwell denied that he knew anything about Lambert's plan to make him the Lord Protector. He, he stood by his words. He said, I can say it in the presence of diverse persons here who know whether I lie, that I did not know one tittle of that resignation of the Parliament's authority to himself till they all came and brought it and delivered it into my hands. So patient, selfless, perplexed, disappointed, deeply concerned over the good of the church and state of England. In the end, Cromwell recognized an obligation to assume an office he had been genuinely reluctant to seek. But at last he saw the event as the clear manifestation of God's will for his life. He now believed that when he had appointed the assembly of saints and handed over all power to it, he had himself denied his own call of God. And so, believing this was the call of God, he dared no longer to divest himself of what he regarded as his duty to heal and settle and Christianly reconstruct the nation of England as the Lord Protector. As the constitutional head of this free republic, he solemnly undertook the task of making peace, establishing order, and promoting considered reforms after more than a decade of civil war and political chaos. What was his attitude toward during this time? One of self-congratulation and pride and arrogance? During this same period of time, Cromwell wrote a letter to John Cotton, who was the pastor of the church in Boston, Massachusetts. And here's what Cromwell said to John Cotton, whose advice he greatly cherished. Cromwell to Cotton. I am a poor, weak creature, yet accepted to serve the Lord and his people. Indeed, you know not me, my weakness, and my inordinate passions, my unskillfulness, and every way unfitness to this work. Yet, yet the Lord, who will have mercy on whom he will, does as you see.